You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus chapter 7. As you're turning there, just a quick update on where we stand with our um, building renovation plans and projects that are coming up. Uh, Everything's moving ahead uh, as planned, and we're getting a schedule together. Right now, we are uh, planning for uh, March 12th, March 19th, and March 26th for us to not meet here, but instead to meet at First Baptist in Sonoy sometime in the afternoon, maybe around four o'clock. We're still nailing down the exact specific times there, but that would give us a full four weeks to be out of here. Um, the last Sunday being uh, March 5th, and so uh, we may reach out to you about getting some help after the service that day to move some of our stuff out and over into other units that we have so that the construction can take place. And then for three Sundays, three consecutive Sundays, we would be at First Baptist Sonoy meeting in the afternoon um, so that everything can be done here. And then hopefully most everything would be done when we moved back in uh, at the beginning of April. So we'll keep you updated on that, but just wanted to give you those dates as you look ahead, potentially making plans uh, for family stuff and that type of thing. Uh, we recognize that it's going to impact your schedule, um, and we may not have full attendance every uh, one of those weeks, but we didn't want to just cancel completely. We wanted to still be able to gather and offer that, even though we'd have to do it at an alternate time. Um, but then hopefully we won't have to uh, stand in the back and worry about how much seating we have every given Sunday and how many people are going to have to sit over next door. And so hopefully that will uh, alleviate that moving forward for a while. Exodus chapter 7, we saw last week uh, kind of a preview, uh, prequel to the plagues as Moses and Aaron went back before Pharaoh and um, again demanded that the people be let free. Uh, Pharaoh resists, uh, and then that battle ensued where we saw the staffs being cast down, turned into snakes. We saw uh, Moses' staff swallowing up the Egyptian magician's staffs, and we talked about how um, our superior God always swallows inferior counterfeits which gives us great responsibility to maximize our obedient responses to him who is real while making sure we are never deceived and hardened to feel other gods can satisfy. We talked about Moses and Aaron's ongoing obedience that we're going to see now, that they are regularly and consistently doing everything that God commands them to do. That becomes a pattern every time a different plague is introduced. Uh, We're going to see Pharaoh's continued hardness to what God is asking of him, what God is demanding of him, that he continues to resist. And it's the counterfeit gods that the Egyptians keep going back to. Um, The magicians will work at times the identical plague. So God will do a plague and the Egyptian magicians will work a, a very similar response to it. And we talked about how maybe satanic powers are at work there. Maybe it's a sleight of hand like a magician that we would know today. Either way, there is a uh, minimizing of God's plagues and his power as the magicians try to work it themselves. And so Pharaoh's heart continues to harden to what God is doing. We talked about how we're not immune to that ourselves, that we're tempted with our own false gods to give our attention and our affection to. And um, I challenged our young people specifically last week as, as they are going through high school, looking to college and beyond to not get consumed with uh, the questions that so often come about who are you going to marry and what job are you going to work and how much money you're going to make and what are you going to do with your life type of stuff that it becomes God's to them. 
all of those things are tools and instruments for what they're going to use uh, to make much of God. They're not gods in and of themselves. And so power and pleasure and profit are, are those three big false gods that we're tempted to. We're tempted to try to seize power. We're tempted to uh, enjoy pleasure outside of God's bounds. Um, we're tempted to be dishonest with our gain in order to increase our profits, uh, to bypass hard work a lot of times. And so those are gods that we're tempted with. And we need to see that God swallows those things up, that he's far superior in the ways that he provides versus those gods that we would be tempted to give our affection to. So I challenge you application-wise last week, don't see the work of God and be guilty of ignoring it like Pharaoh. He sees it around him. He does not obey. We need to have a different type of response. We come now to chapter 7, verse 14, and we're going to look at the first three plagues today. So a large portion that we want to read through today to set the context for what God wants to teach us. It says in verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servant and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it, be it as you say so, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. 
The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, and as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Our summary sentence for today, the plagues remind us that we are to worship God by trusting him alone for everything we need, the what, the when, and the how, because he alone is stable, and when compared to the counterfeit gods out there, none are like him. The plagues remind us that we are to worship God by trusting him alone for everything we need, the what, the when, the how, because he alone is stable. And when compared to the counterfeit gods out there, none are like him. For our kids, we should trust and worship our God because he is so much better than false gods. As you're, as you're thinking and maybe writing some of that down, I want you to think about some of the, uh, the greatest um, comforts that you possess about God, um, truths that you know about God, doctrines that you, you cling to about God, particularly in times of uncertainty or Uh, maybe times of questioning, times of doubt. Like, what are the things that you know to be true about God that bring the greatest comfort to you? And how do you know those things to be true? Where do we find those things being revealed to us? Right, there's different things that would come to mind, probably his, his love, his goodness, his forgiveness, his kindness, his patience, his sovereignty, things that we know to be true about God. And then as we start to think about those truths, we might have uh, specific verses that come to mind that that trigger that for us or teach us that. We need to see that through the plagues, there are key things that we know to be true about God because we see them in the plagues. There are things that we hold to today, things that we cling to today, things that comfort us and encourage us today about our God that we can only cling to because he chooses to reveal those things about himself to us. And he does that through the plagues. The plagues are going to show us that he alone is God. And we need to keep that in mind when we're tempted to bow to other idols. That he alone is God. Now, as we work through these plagues, uh, and if you were to read about the plagues, you might find critics and, and those who go off to college, maybe, maybe you'll have professors that will uh, maybe even bring this up in specific classes where they're going to try to, they're going to try to disprove the validity of scripture by trying to naturalize the plagues with explanations tied to normal experiences for the Egyptians at that time. An example would be, uh, it was not uncommon for the Nile River to have at times a bloody or red uh, coloring to it because of flooding that would happen and large deposits of red clay being dumped into it from the mountains. And so it, it wasn't necessarily uncommon for them at that time to have the Nile kind of be a different coloring, 
Maybe you've seen this in, in lakes that you go and visit. Like when there's a heavy rain, sometimes it turns the, the clear water into a muddy water where things get stirred up and it has almost a orange or reddish tint to it here in the south where, where a lot of our, our dirt is that red clay, right? So um, critics of Scripture, those that want to disprove miracles in Scripture, are going to try to to at times take the plagues and say, hey, this is, this is just natural occurrences that Moses was able to take advantage of. Using the Niles as, as an ex- specific example, though, um, the supernatural aspect is highlighted for us here in Scripture where we can't really deny it. Like, to deny the miracle would be to deny the account that's given to us. Think about how the death of the fish are highlighted. Uh, the impact of the water that was previously already drawn from the water, right? It's not just that the Nile turns into blood. Even water that they have stored in their houses in vessels of stone and wood, these, all the water's turning to blood, right? So you can't just explain it away and saying, hey, they had a flood overnight and it turned the water a reddish tint and Moses was able to capitalize on that and blame God for it. No, like this was a supernatural thing that takes place. All of the plagues are supernatural, even though they might could be explained away. So if there was something going on with the water, then you would expect there would be a lot of frogs out and about, right? And if the frogs are killed, you would expect there to be bugs that would maybe start to come about. So it would be easy to fall into the trap of thinking, hey, maybe, maybe there's not so much supernatural happening here. Maybe there is more natural explanation for it. Uh, several commentators pointed out these five things to remember as proof of the supernatural, that God is doing something unique and special here. One is the intensification of these plagues, right? Egypt would have had frog problems and bug problems. It wouldn't have been un, uh, unnatural for them to have hail. Even with the dust storms, there would have been days where, where it would have been darker than lighter, maybe for a normal day. Uh, but the intensification that's given to us in Scripture is not natural. The type of darkness that we're going to see when we get to it, the type of hail that we're going to see when we get to it, it's different than what would have been a natural occurrence. The, the prediction piece of it, that Moses um, communicating on God's behalf is able to start and stop these things at a moment's notice. Even we're going to see as he talks to Pharaoh, when do you want the frogs to go away? Give me your schedule. When do you want that to happen? I want it to happen tomorrow. Great, then it's going to happen tomorrow. So the prediction piece points to the supernatural. The discrimination piece that we're going to see points to the supernatural. That's the part where we don't see it in the first three plagues, but as we continue through, we're going to see that some of these plagues don't touch the Hebrews in Goshen, that they're completely preserved and protected from it. That points to the supernatural as well, that these things are happening on specific people in specific places in Egypt. The orderliness of it, we're going to see today how the severity of the plagues increases, which would make sense if this is a judgment from God. You wouldn't necessarily see him kind of all over the map as far as like how harsh these are. We see his grace through the plagues. We're going to see how there's, there's a staggering of severity. And then the moral purpose of it, the purpose of, of constantly pointing the people to uh, knowing who Yahweh is both the Egyptians and the Hebrews. So there's purpose behind the judgment. All of that together points to the supernatural. The plagues happen in God's timing and with his instigation through his chosen messengers. They're not random. They're not unintentional. They are purposeful. And each plague is the Lord 
Uh, one commentator said, each plague is the Lord marshalling the powers of creation against Pharaoh and using weapons against him that only the creator can use. He's going to use the water against him. He's going to use the land against him. He's going to use the sky against them. They're all coming after Pharaoh. There's movies that are out there that try to, to depict stories where, where nature is weaponized against the enemy. God shows how that can be. When you're the creator, you can weaponize creation against the enemy. And he does that here against Pharaoh. He brings those three key elements where their gods were, were supposed to be sovereign and reigning supreme. He brings the Nile River against the people. He brings the land. He brings the sky to bring judgment. The plagues are going to unfold as that responsive answer to what we saw Pharaoh questioning back in chapter 5, verse 2. When Moses first came before him, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know this Lord. I will not let Israel go. God is working to answer that question. I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to show why you should obey my voice. Think about that. Pharaoh's offense, Pharaoh's offense here is not that the Israelites have a different God than him. We don't ever see Pharaoh trying to evangelize the Hebrews to worship their gods. Right? He's not offended that they have a different God. It's not, hey, y'all need to not worship Yahweh. You need to worship our gods. The offense comes from you have your own God, and yet you think he has a claim on my life. And that's the same criticism we get today, right? Like you can encounter people, and they're okay with your belief system until you take your belief system and impose it upon them, that they have uh, some type of required response because of what we believe about our God. That's when the offense happens, right? Our culture says, hey, everybody should be allowed to have their own gods and live how they want to live. The moment that your beliefs start to intertwine with somebody else's and you start to make demands on their life, then that's when a problem happens. And that's where the problem comes for Pharaoh. Hey, you can worship your own God, but now you're asking me to worship your God, and I'm offended by that. The plagues are going to show his way of thinking is off, that these aren't other gods truly. There's only one true God who's unlike anything else. That's the purpose of the frog plagues, as we're going to see in verse 10. It says, uh, Moses said, Be as, it, as you say so, that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh. There is no other God like him. The plagues are going to attack that religious pluralism, that all religions are equal, that all religions are valid, that all religions are the same. They're not. The plagues are also going to attack personal autonomy, that we have the right to live however we want. Instead, the plagues are going to show us that he is the one true God and our obedience is demanded by him. The plagues remind us that God is serious about our response to his commands, specifically his call to repentance and faith. They also warn us that when we're tempted to love, serve, and trust anything other than the living God, that we're in danger. So if we give ourselves to power and pleasure and profit, we come under his judgment. Now, I would encourage you as we're, as we're reading through this and as we do this over the next several weeks to not view this, particularly our youth and our kids, don't view this as outdated stories that have no relevance for us today. It's why a lot of people stay away from the Old Testament, right? They feel like, hey, those were, those were stories and narratives that were for a time period and a place that no longer exists. Like, we don't worship idols today, so who cares about the Egyptian idols at that time? No, we need to see that, that these stories aren't outdated, that we struggle with the same things today. 
We need to see that the gods that we're tempted to follow, that the things that culture extends to us with the offers that come with it, that they are going to be swallowed up by our God. We also can see God's grace as I already shared with you through the ways that these plagues unfold. Think about the, the severity of them, right? We go from a lack of drinking water, but there's not no drinking water, right? Like they didn't go seven days without drinking water. They had to dig for it, right? So they, they, they have a lack of drinking water. They've got frogs in their beds, which is awful, right? But not as awful as, as the rest of the plagues that are to come, right? We've got gnats, which are super annoying, right? Um, those of you that have been, I don't know if it's like this for a ladies retreat, but those of us that have been on the men's retreat um, and then like even at summer camp, there's times where the gnats and the, the bugs at Snowbird, like it makes it even hard to just stand and talk to somebody, right? Like I've been in conversations before where we're both trying to talk, but we're doing it like this. And it just seems natural because the other person's doing this. And eventually you're just like, hey, you want to go inside? Like this is, this is, it's really hard to talk to you when you're doing this and trying to talk through your hands, right? Like we've all been in cases like that. Uh, I've been in uh, at the beach before at Cape Sandblast where um, Adam McLeod and I got up one morning to go fishing early. And man, we were just catching fish and it was awesome. And then the bug showed up and it was just so annoying. Like you couldn't stay outside and do anything and enjoy anything. Those are the first three plagues that we see. Then we start to see that they move from kind of an annoyance uh, to a painful cost. It's, it's inconvenient to have frogs in your bed, but nobody's dying from that. It's inconvenient to have gnats in your nose, but nobody's dying from that. But then you start to see like a, a painful cost starts to happen where uh, crops are being affected, uh, boils are showing up, livestock's being impacted. Then you start to see that destructive loss that happens where the hail with fire comes. You see um, eventually, obviously, the death of the firstborn. God moves from inconvenience to destruction. There's this, this path, and here's the, here's the, the, the piece that, that we lose sight of when we, when we try to blame God for being uh, a cosmic bully. Egypt could have gotten off that train anytime they wanted to. Egypt could have gotten off anytime they wanted to. They didn't have to keep going down that path. And so we see God's grace mixed with his judgment, but still that grace piece. I think the same is true for us. And let us not be ignorant and, and, and uh, um, ignore God's even movement in our own life. I think we see God do this at times for us to get our attention. There's things that I think he will work in our life that maybe we could classify more as an annoyance, where he's trying to get our attention. Maybe it moves to where now there's some painful cost to it, right? Like where, hey, he, he's, he's doing some things. He's taking some things from us. Um, he, he's trying to get our attention to where it could even go further, where we start to see the full consequences of our sin and we reap what we sow. We need to be, we need to be thinking about that. Like, let God get your attention with the annoying things. Don't, don't stay on the path of, of his discipline to where it gets more and more worse trying to get our attention. Let's jump in and see these three plugs, and we'll spend uh, one point each on uh, them. First, number one, trust the Lord's provision. We want to trust the Lord's provision as a learning lesson from what we see with the Nile River being turned into blood. God is going to turn the Nile River to blood to attack Egypt's God of provision. He turns the Nile River to blood to attack God's, or Egypt's God of provision. This is the God that they would have turned their worship to, trusting him for their provision. 
because their provision was largely tied to the Nile River. It was the lifeblood of Egypt. No Egypt without the Nile River. Here's how they utilized the Nile River for their economy and their culture and for their provision. It was their source of transportation. They would have transported goods back and forth through the Nile River. Irrigation. They would have, I mean, we know Egypt's in the desert type area of that, of that Middle East. And so the irrigation that came from the Nile River, they had systems in place where they could pull water from the Nile River to, to supply for their crops, right? So they're growing things because the Nile River, even though it may not be raining, they're tapping into the water source there. They're drinking water, their food, fish was a, a major source of uh, consumption for them when it came to food. Their calendar was dated around the, the flood season, right? So they, they thought of the year in terms of when the heavy floods would come. And when the heavy floods came, it would deposit rich topsoil on top of their land as the waters would recede. So it became a great place for planting crops because that, that, that ground was deposited as the waters would recede. It was their source of life and they worshiped it as the creator and sustainer of all life for Egypt. There were three different gods associated with it. God comes in here as a judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt and strips them of their life source. They're going to have no drinking water, no food. The fish are going to die. We see that they're left to dig and to labor for water. It becomes hard to try to find it. Man, I think that we don't, we don't get this in the story by reading it, but if you just pause and think for a minute, seven days without this stuff. Think about how our, how our culture panics at the thought of not having certain things for even less than seven days, right? Like we get word that there is a, uh, a supply issue with oil or gas, and we go running to try to stock up as much of it as we can get, and prices go flying through the roof because we panic. We panic about milk and water. We panic about all that type of stuff. I mean, think about the panic that ensued when, when uh, the, the pandemic happened in 2020, Right? Like there was this, this mass desire to self-preserve. Right? Like we got we to gotta get and hoard and try to collect and, and make sure that we don't run out of certain things because there's going to be a shortage of it. I don't know what this seven days would have looked like, but it probably would have looked eerily similar, if not far greater than some of what we've experienced in the last couple of years. When you feel like there's a shortage of something, it produces mass panic and they've had their greatest source of life taken from them. Pharaoh doesn't panic. He brings the magicians before and says, hey, do the same thing, which they do. They, they, they duplicate the issue. Congratulations, you've made it worse. Like you've taken pure water wherever they found it. Maybe, maybe this is the, some of the initial water that they were able to dig up near the Nile River. Hey, we found some water that's not blood, Pharaoh. Look what we found. Look, we can turn it into blood too. It's like, uh, that doesn't help anything. Like we're going to need that water. They can't, they can't, they can't reverse it. All they can do is duplicate it. They only make the situation worse. They can't resolve it. They can't reverse it. They can't fix it. But notice Pharaoh's response to it. His heart is hardened. In response to them turning the drinking water that they find into blood, it says in verse 22, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. He turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. God goes after their, after their source of provision. He takes it from them. To get their attention, he takes it from them. They can still live. They can still dig and find enough drinking water. Super inconvenient, though. 
Super inconvenient for them to have to do this. And there is this, this state of flux where how long will this happen? How long will we be in this state? We know that it lasts seven full days before it's, before it's reversed back, before God steps in and changes it. The lesson that we can learn here is that our God is the only stable this world knows, making him the source of provision for all our needs. He is the only thing that's stable that we should trust for our provision. Now, we're tempted to trust other things, right? Like we're tempted that, that the job that we have, the financial security that our family possesses, that that's stable enough to where we can trust it and find security in it. And as stable as it may feel, the Nile River would have felt incredibly stable for them. I mean, for centuries, it would have done the things that it does for them. And there wouldn't have been a whole lot of deviation from that. And then in a moment's notice, it changes. And our financial security can change in a moment's notice too. I mean, you can go to work one day and come home without that same job. You can have everything stripped from you. We're not the creator. We're not the sustainer. Our God is. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the constant. He is the stable. He's the one we trust for our provision because he's the only one that doesn't change. The Nile River changes here. It goes from from pure drinking water to blood in in a spoken word. All of it changes for the Egyptians. Whatever we may be tempted to find our provision in, right? Like we're not finding it in the Nile River, but we're finding it potentially in similar things, right? Our jobs are certainly tied to uh, gas, and certainly tied to the stability of our government, the stability of our culture. Like the things that we're tempted to find our source of provision in certainly tied to things that are very unstable, very unstable. The lesson we need to learn here is that our God is the only stable. We trust him for our provision. Number two, the second plague, frogs. We want to trust the Lord's timing. Seven days passed with the Nile River turned to blood. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. If you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. God produces swarms of frogs to attack Egypt's goddess of life and fertility. This goddess here was the the source of worship for them when it came to um, uh, the the provision of life, particularly fertility. This was the the goddess who was supposed to help their women have children, right? And and, and this, this goddess was depicted as a frog. So frogs were super sacred in their culture, Um, which is interesting to think about when you know that they were so sacred, you weren't allowed to kill frogs. So think about how that kind of plays into the plague here. You've got frogs everywhere that are super annoying, and yet you believe that there's some divineness 
to them. So it's not as easy as getting your frog gigging tool out and just poking them in the back and frying up their legs to eat. Like, your, your conscience is conflicted because it's like, I'm not supposed to kill these animals. These animals are tied to a God that I worship. And they would have been sacred. So there's this tension here of like, okay, now frogs are going to be everywhere. And I can't, I can't really do anything to prevent them by killing them. Now, some of you may have like a, a fear of an individual frog. Um, and, and maybe that fear only escalates when you're, you're like asked to touch one or hold one. Um, most of us are probably okay with one or two frogs kind of being in the area. Nobody's going to probably freak out too much about that. Frogs become scary and creepy and, and really um, uh, annoying when you're talking about the amount that we're talking about here, right? It's not one or two. Uh, due to their vast number, they are probably pretty scary and creepy at this point to think that you can't even get into bed without getting into bed with frogs. Imagine trying to sleep with the noise that frogs make. Again, this is God's annoying judgment. Nobody's dying from frogs. Nobody's being overly hurt by frogs. But it is super annoying, right? Like, however long, we don't get a great time frame here of how long they last, but you would have been dealing with irate people who haven't slept probably in a while, that are super annoyed by the fact that I've got frogs like all over the place. I can't even really eat without like frog slime in my food. I mean, it would have just been really, really annoying. And it really gets to the point where Pharaoh's pretty annoyed by it. Like we don't see Pharaoh, maybe he did, maybe he didn't step in and say, hey, can you turn the Nile River back to regular water? He probably had plenty of people still bringing him drinking water. He may not have been impacted too much by this, but with the frogs, he is impacted. He is impacted. And the Egyptian religious leaders, they are summoned once again, and they can only duplicate the issue. They can only make it worse. Hey, we can produce more frogs. We're not lacking in frogs here, right? We want to get rid of the frogs, and they can't resolve it. They can't reverse the plague. And so we do have this interesting dynamic where Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron. Plead with the Lord, it says in verse 8, to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. He summons for Moses and Aaron to come, and by doing so, he's admitting defeat in this area, right? He's, he's responding with uh, a, a white flag, basically. Come and fix this. Like, we've cried out to our goddess, who's supposed to be over the gods, and we've gotten no response, so now we need to come you, have you come and fix this. <coughs> and he responds and negotiates and makes a false submission that he promises to act if God will relent here, and that he'll release the people if God will take the frogs away. And so it's interesting that the dialogue that happens here, because Moses says to Pharaoh, yeah, I'll do this. I'll plead for God on your behalf. When do you want me to ask him to make him go away? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a supernatural uh, relationship that he has with God, because people ask us to pray for things all the time, right? We probably never respond and say, cool, like, when do you want that to happen? Because I'm going to, I'm going to, tie that into my prayer, and you can expect it to happen then, right? Like, super bold on Moses' part to say, I'll do this for you. Give me the specifics of when you want this to happen, because I'm going to ask for that. And that's exactly what happens. It's interesting that Pharaoh says tomorrow, right? He's so annoyed that he's got to bring Moses and Aaron to him, but he doesn't say, now? Like, get rid of them now. There's probably a piece where he's hoping they'll go away earlier than tomorrow, so that he can not credit 
the God of Hebrews for it. Um, at that point, then he doesn't even have to worry about the agreement that he has to let the people go, because if it happens outside of God's power, then there's another explanation for it. So he says tomorrow, and Moses responds and says, great, that's what we're going to ask for. Um, and they're going to be disposed of based on that timing, and it shows God's ability to act in response to our prayers and at specific times. Man, this helps us to see that we can trust the Lord's timing because he is the Lord of time. When he does something, it's in accordance with whenever he wants to. He doesn't have to wait for anything. He doesn't have to delay for anything. He can move and act whenever he wants to, which gives us reason to trust his timing in our own life. The resolution comes just as Moses said it would, and in response to him praying. He cries out to the Lord about the frogs. He shares what's been agreed with for Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. Now, here's what's interesting. Moses told Pharaoh, the frogs are going to go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They'll be left only in the Nile. Then we get the actual response. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. And they had to gather them together in heaps, and the land stank. Couldn't help but read this and think that this is like a, a bad genie wish, right? Where like the genie says, you got three wishes, and you're like, okay, great. And like, you see this all the time play out where the, the person wishes for something and the genie's so literal that they grant it and it's like, ah, this isn't what I meant, right? Like, well, the genie's like, that's what you wish for, right? Like, we've all seen that kind of play out. That's how this feels. It's like, hey, we want the frogs to be done with. Great, we'll make that done. When? Tomorrow, tomorrow. Okay, great. And then they just die, right? Like, Pharaoh was probably hoping they would disappear as quickly as they showed up and they just drop dead everywhere, Imagine the cleanup for that. And it's told that they have to collect them and gather them and pile them up. And the smell is just stinking. You had the stinky fish. Now you got stinky frogs. Remember, the Hebrew elders left and said, we have become stinky to Pharaoh. Remember, that was the criticism to Moses. You have made us stink in the nose of Pharaoh. Now we have a whole different stench that's going around Egypt. The, 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 the dead animals are becoming stinky to the environment. Even the resolution to the frogs is a miracle, right? The fact that God could swarm these frogs and bring them in these vast numbers, particularly after what just happened to the Nile River, right? Where, where fish were dying. So it's not an optimal time to find a lot of frogs. They would have fled probably in those seven days. He's got frogs everywhere. And there's a miracle here that he kills them all in one, one swoop. The frogs are gone. The Egyptians have to remove them, which would have been more and more opportunity to get their lives right and to make a decision to turn to this God, and yet they don't. The lesson that we learn here is that our God has the ability to act whenever he chooses. Making his timetable impeccable means his timetable is wise, it's good, it's perfect. He's our provider. He provides in his timing, and his timing is always wise and good and perfect. These are things that we cling to today, right? And we, we say the Lord is our provider. We say his timing is perfect. How do we know that? We know it from accounts like this in Scripture. He chose to reveal to us that he's our provider. He chose to reveal to us that he's the Lord of time. And then lastly, number three, we trust the Lord's activity. We trust the Lord's activity. The third plague is the gnats. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, no, we don't have a warning given here to Pharaoh. Maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. Maybe the warning, or maybe there isn't a warning because you reneged on your offer to let the people go. And so... You've already hardened your heart, so we're just going to go right into plague number three is how it seems. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth. 
so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. God produces swarms of gnats to attack Egypt's God of earthly affairs. This was the God of earth, the God of soil. Now, we don't know exactly what bug this is. Some translations may say lice. Uh, others may say mosquito. Uh, ESV says gnat. There's a lot of disagreement about what type of bug this is. Um, what's clear to us is that it comes from the dust being converted into life. And I think that's significant because I think that's why the magicians can't do it. <clears throat> and I think it's also why we would say that there is demonic power happening in the first two and not a sleight of hand because they probably could have figured out the sleight of hand piece if they were trying to replicate every plague. They can't do this one. And I think it's significant because we've talked about how Satan can't, uh, he can't produce anything himself. He can only pervert it, right? So he can't create life. He can only corrupt it. And so that's exactly what we have here. These, these gnats aren't just gnats coming from like already in existence. The dust is being turned into gnats here. And it becomes another piece of annoyance for the Egyptian people. There's gnats on man, there's gnats on beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Their trust in the soil, which would have been part of their daily walk in Egypt, that trust is challenged here. What they begin to realize is they don't control their life, nor is it controlled by the gods that they worship. It's controlled by the God of Israel. The Egyptian religious leaders try to replicate the plague. They try to reverse the plague, but they can only deduce from all of this that this is the finger of Yahweh. I think that's interesting how they use the word finger here because up to this point, we've seen God talking about stretching out his hand. Right? His hand was going to be stretched out. I think that finger really pinpoints to the intentionality here that they see. That this is specifically being done by the, the God of the Hebrews. Like he is, he is intervening in time and space to do this at this point in time. Like we need to pay attention here. We can't do this and we can't stop this. This is their God doing this. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them. The lesson that we need to learn that Pharaoh doesn't learn here is that our God's finger is on every aspect of our life. And his intentionality should bring both comfort and obedience. We don't know how aware the Hebrews were of these conversations, but if I'm a Hebrew here and I hear the enemy saying, this is the God of the Hebrews doing this, and I'm comforted by that. Like you're admitting defeat here. You're admitting that your gods aren't as good as the God that we're, we're being introduced to and starting to really try to follow right now. There's comfort there. But there's a demand to obedience here too. Like if, if he's the great provider, not the Nile River, if he's the Lord of time, not, the, not the, the, the goddess of fertility that we've been worshiping, and he's the one that determines not only uh, what we get, but when we get it, right? And, and this, is, this ought to be such an encouragement to those of us who, who want certain things in life and we've not been given those things yet. Good things, Good things that we would love to use for God's glory. That could be anything from a spouse to a kid to a job, whatever that may be. Like We trust God that he provides what we need when we need it and how we need it. We trust his fingers. We trust his hands. We trust that he is the God of our soil. He's the God of our daily walk. 
everything that they would have done would have been on that soil, right? And we worship this God of the soil, and he controls and provides, and, and then Yahweh shows up and says, no, he doesn't. Like, my finger directs your daily walk. My finger determines what happens to you at any moment's notice. That ought to bring comfort to us, and it demands obedience to us as well. Luke chapter 11. Last verse I want to read to you, and then I'm going to give you two application points to wrap up. Luke chapter 11, verse 14. This is a passage that talks about that that cosmic battle that we're saying happens in the plagues, where you've got Satan and his forces, God and his forces, and it's coming into view through the plagues. Well, Jesus describes it coming into view during his ministry as well. It says, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. He's saying like, this doesn't make any sense for you to say that I'm casting out, but, but maybe it does because the, the, the magicians are potentially using demonic power to turn water into blood, to bring out more frogs. Like, you're not helping the problem here. And so what Jesus is saying is, why would I cast out demons by Satan's power if Satan's power is the one that put the demon there? He says like, you guys are trying to explain away my work just so you're not held accountable. Look what he says in verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here would be my challenge to you, particularly to those who are still young in their faith, or maybe haven't, haven't really responded yet. And we, we may have both in, in this room right now. We may have some, particularly of our youth and kids, who have not yet believed in Christ and given their life to him in faith. Don't be guilty of being Pharaoh and the magicians who saw things about God and believed those things about God. Because you can grow up in a Christian family and you can go to a Christian school and you can hear all these things about God and you can even believe some of those things about God. The magician said, this is the finger of God here. This isn't our God and this isn't us. We can't do this. This is the finger of God here. Even Pharaoh said, hey, come and and fix the frog problem because we can't fix it ourselves. There were things they believed about God and yet they would not obey him. We need to be cautious and careful that we're not guilty of the same thing. Some of us have heard about God for a long time, and we believe things about God, but we don't obey Him. And that's the sign of true salvation. That's where we're different than Pharaoh and the magicians. Moses and Aaron obeyed this God. The magicians and Pharaoh didn't. So my two points of application to, to, to help you kind of think and put all this together. Number one, We're to worship God as sovereign creator who controls everything in order to provide what we need, when we need it, and how we need it. That's the message we're to see from the plagues, that we worship this God. We trust him alone for everything. The when, the how, the why. Because he alone is stable. Right? He's our stable provider, so we worship him because of that. He's going to provide what we need, when we need it, how we need it. 
But number two, we've got to avoid seeing God's finger around us, only believing certain aspects about him and failing to turn to him for life-altering salvation. And can you imagine growing up here at our church, sitting under God's word weekly, being a part of our kids' ministry and our youth group, and, and believing things about God. So hear me on this, youth. Like, you, you can't believe things about God and not come to him for life-altering salvation. And it's possible to be in that spot where you just believe things about God and you hear things about God and maybe you'll admit some things about God. But when you're not around God's people, you don't follow him, you don't obey him, you don't worship him, you turn to the gods of this world, you turn to pleasure, you turn to profit, you turn to power, and those are the things where you find your identity. Let me challenge you not to miss it. And ask yourself, do I worship this God? Am I all in on this God? Do I see him as my great provider? Or am I relying on other things? Am I trusting the things that my friends trust? Am I trusting the one that I see here in Exodus who is sovereign over everything? His finger is on all parts of your life. It's up to you to see that. It's up to you to respond to that. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you and praise you that you are a God who has revealed these comforting truths to us. Because if we're honest with ourselves, these are the things that bring us hope and assurance today, that you are our provider, that you are sovereign over time, that you get to move and act and choose when you do things, and you don't have to ask anybody for permission for the win. You can start things and you can stop things whenever you want to. And that brings us great assurance. Even when we're, when we're uh, struggling with doubt, when you choose to to um, take someone's life. Lord, we question that and we say, why? But Lord, we can always come back and be reminded of the fact that the win is under your control. You're Lord over time, and we thank you for that. Lord, help us to see that your actions in our life are evidence of your finger working and moving in intentional ways. Just like when you intervened in the lives of the Egyptians and Pharaoh and brought gnats to grab their attention. Lord, help us to see your own finger working and moving in our life, especially when there's times when you're trying to get our attention. Lord, help us not to discount it or to pass it off or to ignore it. Lord, help us to see that you are calling us to worship you and to worship you alone. Lord, help us to see that you work and move around us. And at times you you bring us through trials just to remind us that the gods that are so close to us that we're so tempted to follow aren't true gods. So Lord, when we experience disappointment in the job place, or we experience um, less than what we would desire within our relationships and our family, Lord, help us not to, to, to see that as a, a failure by you. It's a failure on our part when we, when we put too much trust in, in counterfeit gods. Lord, help us to trust you with what you provide, when you provide it, how you provide it. Protect us from hardening our hearts to only believing certain things about you and not letting you radically change our life. Help us to worship you well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.